0: Good morning, church. How great He is. Amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 25 to 32. Romans, chapter 15, verses 25 to 32. That's Romans, chapter 15. Verses 25 to 32. The Bible reads, But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it had pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It had pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this And have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessings of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, And for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. That is the reading of the word.
1: We will continue our time together this morning in Romans chapter 15. But before we get there, could I ask you to come to Acts chapter 19 with me this morning? We will come to Romans 15 in a bit if you are familiar with my preaching style, I just want to go ahead and warn you, I'm going to be preaching a little bit different today. Uh, Typically, I try to stay in the one passage. However, I think in order for us to understand the passage for today, we will need to spend some time elsewhere. The topic for today is dear and heavy on my heart. And I hope that you will see why as we come through the passage. We'll start in Acts chapter 19 and verse 21. If you remember from last week's sermon, the Apostle Paul wants to go to Spain, and he will stop in Rome on his way there. That's what he said at the end of our passage last week. He said, I, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I hope to be brought on my way thitherward by you. I'm going to stop in Rome. I'm going to get you guys. I want some of you to go with me. I want some of you to support this. There are goers and there are senders. You don't fall into one of those categories. You are disobedient. And so as he is headed that way, he has to take what I might call a very expensive detour. A detour. He wants to go from point A to point B, but he has to stop by somewhere else on the way. I'll just go ahead and tell you, he's in Corinth when he writes this. I'll show it and explain that in a minute. When he writes the book of Romans, he's in Corinth. He could very easily go to Rome next. He already said he wants to go there. But he has to go to Jerusalem first. I hope that in our time together this morning that you'll understand why it was so very important. It's a very costly, very expensive detour. It's a diversion. He's going to go out of the way. His heart is in Spain. His heart is with the Roman believers. But he must go to Jerusalem first. It's a very expensive detour. So let's start off in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, 20, 21 give the story, and I'll do my best to walk through and unpack it without bogging down. Acts chapter 19 and verse number 21. We'll get a look behind the scenes. Here we are. Luke, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 19, verse 21. After these things were ended, Paul, Paul purposed in, his, in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So I'll put this on a map for you so you can see these places. Macedonia is in the northern part of Greece, and Achaia is in the southern part of Greece. Jerusalem, you can see all the way on the eastern side of the map in Israel. He's going to stop in at Macedonia first, then stop into Achaia, Corinth, and his plan, according to Acts chapter 19, is that from Corinth he will make a stop into Jerusalem and then go to Rome. That tells me that he already has a plan to go to Jerusalem. He has a reason to go to Jerusalem. We'll see it shortly. Now when he writes this or when he states this in Acts 19, when he makes this statement that he's going to do this, he is in Ephesus. And Ephesus, important place there, In what is now Turkey, at that time, Asia Minor. Ephesus is, he's on his third missionary journey. Ephesus was the center of all of the work that was going on on that third missionary journey. In fact, you might remember a phrase that he made. He said, We have a great and effectual door is open to us. Two years of wonderful ministry that happened in Ephesus. From Ephesus, he started many churches. Namely, you would remember Colossae, Laodicea, those churches were started as a result of the work in Ephesus. He makes a statement here, I'm going to Macedonia, northern Greece, Achaia, southern Greece, then I'm headed to Jerusalem and coming to Rome. That's his plan. Now come with me into Acts chapter 20. By the way, from Ephesus he sent ahead of him several of the brothers, namely Gaius. Uh, sorry, uh, Titus and Luke went ahead of him over to Macedonia, his plan is he's going to catch up with them. While he's there in Ephesus, a couple of things happen. Some big deal happens. There was a major riot that happened in Ephesus because the gospel was going out so quickly. You might remember that was the time when they gathered in the stadium and for the space of two hours they chanted, Great is Diana of Ephesus. That happens at the end of Acts chapter 19. Two men ended up going in. And in case you don't mind, if we can just slide back to that last map there. So Luke and Timothy have gone on to Macedonia. And back in Ephesus are Gaius and Aristarchus. These two brethren end up getting dragged into the stadium. We know historically that this stadium had 25,000 seats. It was packed, and for two hours, these people were screaming for their blood. They wanted the apostle Paul dragged in, and most likely, if they had pulled Paul into the stadium, he would have died. Paul wanted to go in and save the lives of Gaius and Aristarchus. Paul thought, perhaps, with his oratory skill, his ability to speak, perhaps he could have calmed down the crowd. By God's grace, several men with wisdom held Paul back, Gaius and Aristarchus, for their lives. I'm sure they were scarred for the rest of their lives from this. A government official stepped in and by God's grace calmed down the city. As soon as that finishes, look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 1. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. When he had gone over those parts and given them much much exhortation, he came into Greece, southern Greece, and there abode three months. So here he is now in southern Greece, the province of Achaia, the town of Corinth. You don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter 16 and verse 1 tells us the exact place is Synchria. It's a port city on the eastern side of Corinth. And there he is, and you see In Acts chapter 20 and verse 3, that he abode there in Corinth, Synchria, the port city. He abode there for three months. I'll just go ahead and give you an insight. It is from that moment, that three months, that he writes the book of Romans. You can find that out in Romans 16 and verse 1. He says, I'm in Synchria, in the house of Phoebe. I commend unto you, Phoebe. She's a wonderful lady. She's taken good care of me. This is how we know that Paul is in Corinth when he writes this. Now his plan, remember, from Corinth is to go to Jerusalem. That's his plan. But Acts chapter 20 and verse 3 tells us there's a problem. Look at verse 3 again. He abode there three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. His plan was to get on a ship and go from Corinth eastward to Jerusalem. He was going to get on a ship and go. That would have been an easy thing. It would have been the logical thing. He had something in Jerusalem that was drawing him there. He needed to get something accomplished in Jerusalem before he could go to Rome. And yet, when he was headed to the port, there were Jews waiting for him. They would have killed him. At best, they would have arrested him. He couldn't go that way, and so he turned northward on foot. You can notice as he turns towards Macedonia, it looks like a short ways on the map, but this is a long ways to go. I'm telling you this morning, it was a very expensive, costly detour. Something's drawing him, something's causing him to want to go to Jerusalem, and I hope that by now you're beginning to wonder What is it? He had several traveling companions with him. You can see some of them listed in chapter 20 and verse 4. Some of these guys who start off in chapter 20 and verse 4, I think, don't end up making it all the way there. And so these guys that I have listed for you, seven of them, I take their names from a compilation. I've read through and studied who's in Romans, who's in Acts, Who finally makes it to Jerusalem? And it's a very simple way to see this. I see the two that are the easiest to notice are Timothy and Luke. Timothy is his son in the faith. He loves Timothy. Timothy goes with him just about everywhere by this point in ministry. Luke is the historian and the physician who has been accompanying them. You can see the words in verse number 6. We sailed away from Philippi. So Luke is with them. By the way, if you take the time to look at it, back in chapter 20. You can just look. I'll grab one. Verse 33, they drew Alexander out of the multitude. He's not there with them in chapter 20. He is with them in chapter, uh, sorry, he's not with them in chapter 19. He is with them in chapter 20. Luke is back with him. He's the historian. He's the one that's writing the story as they go. The next ones that I notice in this group are very important. These are three guys from Macedonia. It's Jason, Gaius, and Aristarchus. I've already mentioned Gaius and Aristarchus. Gaius and Aristarchus were the two brothers that were in Ephesus in the stadium. They've almost given their life already for the gospel. They love Paul deeply. And then there's Jason. Jason is mentioned in Acts chapter 17. He, gets, he shows up in the scriptures twice. Once in Acts chapter 17 and again in the book of Romans he's mentioned as going along with Paul. Jason is the one who in Thessalonica paid out from his own pockets to save Paul's life. And oh, by the way, it's worth noting that these three brothers are from Macedonia. Just log that away. We'll come to it later. And then two more guys, Tychicus and Trophimus. They're listed at the end of verse 4. It says they came from Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. Later on, Trophimus's name will show up and I'll point it out when we get to it. These seven men, possibly more, are traveling with Paul and they're on foot going north out of Corinth and they're going to head to Macedonia before they can make it to Jerusalem. They're going for their lives. It will be dangerous. There are thugs already waiting for them in Sincrea. We saw that in chapter 20 and verse 3. They'd been in Corinth for three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him. You get this picture? Paul's there in the city and God's doing a work. And he's ready to get on a ship and go to Jerusalem. And word comes to him, Paul, don't you dare go down to the port. They're down there waiting for you. I'm just going to make a note here and it's worth noting. Corinth was located on an isthmus. It's a very little, small piece of land. Today, there's actually a canal that connects through. It was the shortcut to get from eastern Greece to western Greece. If you wanted to go by ship to Rome, the shortcut was to go right through Corinth. There was an eastern port and a western port. At that time, you could come on a ship to the eastern side of Corinth, unpack all of your things from the ship, carry it across to the other side of Corinth, Get on a ship on the western side and away you could go. So I know Paul sees these men are waiting on the eastern side. They're expecting him to go to Jerusalem. Remember, the easy thing for him to do is just get on a ship and go to Rome. But instead, he turned on foot and he went north to Macedonia. He has to get to Jerusalem. Something is drawing him. I mentioned, by the way, that this is a dangerous journey. Look at chapter 20 and verse number 22. Paul knows it. He knows it's a dangerous journey. As he makes this journey, he meets up with the Ephesian church elders in a town called Miletus. I won't go into that, but I do want you to see what it is he says to them. It lets us know that he knows it's dangerous. He's not a fool as he makes this trip. Acts chapter 20, verse 22, "...and now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem." not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither I count my life dear unto myself, so that I may finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of god shall see my face no more i know it that's what he just said i know it i'm never coming back here you'll never see my face again they end up weeping over him for that statement by the end of that chapter the thing that disturbs them the most is the fact that he said you'll never see my face again he knows it he said i hear it everywhere i go this isn't going to go well for me but i have to go to jerusalem He is so close to Rome. In Corinth, he could have gotten on a ship, gone west. Five to seven days, he would have been in Rome. And no Judaizers to try to kill him. Something is pulling him to Jerusalem, and he cannot stop it. And he says, I know that this is going to be costly. Look at chapter 21 in verse 4. He gets to Tyre. Chapter 20, look at verse 3. When we discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand. He's sailing past Cyprus, the island, and he sailed unto Syria, landed at Tyre, for there the shipper was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days. So they found disciples at Tyre, and those disciples said to Paul, listen to these words, through the Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. God sent a message to Paul through the disciples, at tire and said, "It's not going to go well with you." And yet Paul continues to go. Look at chapter twenty-one in verse number ten. He comes into Caesarea in verse number nine. He comes, verse number eight. He gets into Caesarea, and then verse number ten. Here comes a prophet. As we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. That's not a name you hear very often. Here comes the prophet Agabus. I have a feeling that Agabus is a little bit elderly and thus respected. Verse 11, And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. You know what Agabus just said? The Holy Spirit told me to say something to you, Paul. Paul, let me have your belt. Paul takes his belt off, and Agabus takes the belt and ties his own hands up. And he says, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you, in case you're missing the message, everywhere else you go. See this? My hands are tied up. And the guy who owns this belt, when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to get tied up. If ever there was a clear message coming to the Apostle Paul, it was: "You go to Jerusalem; it will not go well for you." And yet, he still has to go. Apostle Paul, did I say this was expensive, physically dangerous, way out of the way? If you draw a straight line from Corinth. To Jerusalem and back as 2,000 miles. But he didn't go straight line, he went on foot up over Macedonia and came down around to Ephesus, caught a ship from that side and ends up going across. This is a 5,000 kilometer out of the way journey. Very costly detour. The Apostle Paul is going way out of the way And something is driving him. Why? Why do you have to go to Jerusalem, Paul? And the answer is found in Romans chapter 15. So come with me back to Romans chapter 15. We took our scripture reading from here this morning, Romans chapter 15 and verse number 25. As I mentioned last week, this part of the letter is intensely personal for him. He has spoken of the gospel and how glorious it is. And oh friend, please don't miss that fact. The gospel will transform your life. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus. It's good for your salvation. It's also good for your sanctification. You trust Jesus and therein will the righteousness of God be revealed in your life from faith to faith. As you take another step of faith, His righteousness is revealed in your life because of the gospel. And now here He is in the end of Romans chapter 15 and He's very personal in this part. Here he is, verse number 25. And as I look at this, I see a number of things about this that has to do with this trip to Jerusalem. The first thing I want you to grasp is this. The trip to Jerusalem has a purpose. He's just not going there for the fun of it. The trip to Jerusalem has a purpose. Look at verse 25. But now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. Listen to those words. I go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, in their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. Paul's not headed to Jerusalem for a sightseeing trip. This is not a tourism trip. He's not going for a speaking engagement. He has not been invited there. There is a reason he's going, and he's going so that he can minister. That's the words in verse number 25. Minister unto the saints. And it's not just saints. Look at verse 26 and how he describes the saints. The poor saints that are in Jerusalem. Notice also in verse 26, "...it pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia." Those believers that were in northern Greece and southern Greece, it has pleased them to send, and I'm just going to use some plain language, send a love offering to go and help the poor saints that are in Jerusalem. Let me give you some historical background of what was going on at that time. Back in Acts chapter 11, and I've got the verse up here for you, back in Acts chapter 11, that prophet Agabus had made a prophecy. You didn't know Agabus existed. Now you get to hear from him twice this morning. In Acts chapter 11, verse 28, here's what Agabus had said. They were in Antioch at that time. Agabus stood, one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there would be a great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea which also they did and sent it by the hand, by the elders uh, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So there was a love offering that was sent at that time from Antioch to the believers in Jerusalem. They carried the love offering from there. This famine is well documented in history lasted more than 13 years. The church in Antioch sent a love offering that we see in Acts chapter 11. Later on, the churches of Galatia also sent a love offering to the church in Jerusalem. And again, this time we see here in Romans 15 that Paul is carrying a love offering from the churches of Macedonia. This is the third love offering that's going to the church in Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem made up of people that were in hiding. Remember by Acts chapter 8 the rest of the church at Jerusalem is all scattered. The ones that are at the church now are in hiding fearing for their own life. You remember we've shown this just a few weeks ago. The very fact that all of the church was scattered except for the apostles. That's all that's left Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And so here is a small group of believers that are greatly oppressed, and this famine has particularly hit Jerusalem hard. We can tell from history, even down, the details of this famine are well documented. The price of wheat coming out of Egypt is documented there was a flood in the Nile during this time that caused the wheat fields in Egypt to be destroyed even where Egypt would have been able to help out when the Roman territory was needing it the Rome, the Egyptian wheat suppliers were unable to meet the need so here you have a great famine and on top of it the price of wheat is going through the roof and now the, even the supply of that wheat The believers that are in Jerusalem are oppressed and they need help. The Apostle Paul is carrying this love offering from those believers in Macedonia. He's bringing the Macedonian and Achaian, bringing that love offering to them. He speaks of this in 2 Corinthians as he writes to the churches in Achaia, namely the church of Corinth, and he speaks of the Macedonian actions. Here's the statement he makes, 2 Corinthians 8 and verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So he's writing to southern Greece and he says, hey, pay attention to what God did in northern Greece. Here's what he did, verse 2, how that in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. The churches of Macedonia gave even though they themselves were also going through the famine. They were also poor. Did you see the words in verse 2? From their deep poverty, they gave. What are they doing? They're giving to the believers in Jerusalem who were also poor. Do you see what's happening? Poor believers are giving to help poor believers. We in our human thinking, want to say, no, rich people should be giving to help poor people, but these believers have a completely different mindset, and Romans chapter 15 helps us to see it. Look at verse 27. It has pleased them verily. They're excited about this, and they're debtors they are. The believers in Macedonia and Achaia feel that they are debtors to the believers in Jerusalem. Why? Because there's a biblical principle here. The biblical principle is in verse 27. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. Here's the biblical principle. I receive spiritual things from you. I give you physical things. That's the biblical principle. And this is not the only place that it's taught. It's taught many times throughout the New Testament. I receive spiritual things. I give physical things. Here are these poor believers who are in a famine themselves. And Paul says, I'm blown away with the way that they give from their deep poverty. And they give liberally because they understand we've received spiritually. We give physically. And If I can just be honest, and I won't dwell on this because it's not the point of the passage, but if I can be honest, I think that's difficult for us in our society to grasp. And I'll say that because I honestly believe that we are a receiver society. You say, why do you say that, Pastor? Because greater than 11% of our national budget annually is made up of donor agencies. This year in our budget, 11% More than 1.5 billion kina was given to us. Not because we exported something and received for it, it was given to us. And it was given to us earmarked in places like health and education, which I'm very thankful for gifts like that. But then what that does is it creates a receiver mentality that says, if it has to do with education and health, it belongs to me. We must be very careful, brothers and sisters, about living with a receiver mentality. Paul said, be looking for ways to give. Yea, even Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now listen, I know that being from an expatriate community, it's very difficult for me to speak on this topic. At the same time, it's not the point of the passage, but I don't say these things so that I may receive. I say them so that you may grow spiritually. I pray that you would learn this. It is better to give. Those were the words of Jesus. And these poor Macedonians are giving to the poor Jerusalemites because they understand we've received spiritually from you, Jerusalemites. We're given to you physically. And we want to see God bless you and do great things through you. So Paul's made this trip to Jerusalem on purpose. Look at verse 28 and 29 and we'll see how he feels about This trip. Look at verse 28. Here's Romans 15, verse 28. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. Again, he's still talking to the Romans. I'm going to come see you, and I'm going on to Spain, but first I have to seal this to these brothers. Verse 29. And I'm sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. He, He says it twice, and here's what he says. This trip to Jerusalem, it will be freeing. Not only does it have a purpose, but it will be freeing. It will be freeing. It will free me. And he says it twice, and I love the way that he says it, because both times he says it from a different angle. In verse 28, the first time he says it, When I have performed this and sealed to them this fruit. That's some wording we don't normally use. When I seal to them this fruit. And I ask, okay, what does this mean? drill down and study what are the words what does this mean literally when i take this fruit this love offering and i put it in their hands and i seal it to them i make sure that they've got this i'm now free that's what he says i have to make sure that they get this love offering and he says it a second time in verse number 29 i am sure that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now, friend, please think with me. When is the gospel not full, and when is it not free? I just look at this, and I think to myself, Paul, Paul, what do you mean? What do you mean when you say, when I finish this task, I'm going to come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel? We don't talk like that. In the rest of the Bible, we don't get this kind of phraseology. I come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. What does that even mean, Paul? And I think that you can most easily understand it if you say it in the negative. Let me say it in the negative for you. If I don't accomplish this task, I cannot come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel. Now do you hear it? I've got to accomplish this. And when I do, when I seal this fruit to their hands, when I give it to the brothers in Jerusalem, when I discharge this love offering to them, I'm going to be free, and I'm coming to see you in Rome, and I'm headed to Spain. It will free me up, and I will be with the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. I will have put behind me this task. That's what he's saying. So it is a trip that has a purpose, and it is a trip that is but I hope you're thinking with me this morning. Paul, if that love offering needs to get to the hand of the brothers in Jerusalem, and Paul, you've got to go out of the way before you can go to Rome, why? And oh, by the way, if you go to Jerusalem, it can cost you your life. Why? Why can't you just give it to Titus and let Titus take it? I mean, that would make sense, right? Titus put together Gaius and Aristarchus, let them be the ones that carry this. So I have a feeling that there's something even deeper than just giving this love offering to Jerusalem. Why are you going, Paul? Why are you taking this love offering to Jerusalem personally? Why are you the one that has to do this? And I see it in verse number 30 to verse 33, and this will give us the why. Number three, the trip to Jerusalem will solidify unity among the brethren. Look at verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I'll walk backwards through that. Let me start with verse 33. If I make it to Jerusalem and I don't make it out, I think that's what he's saying in verse 33. If I make it to Jerusalem and I don't make it out, the peace of God be on you. Most likely I won't come and see you. So if things don't go well for me, May God's peace be upon you. Verse 32. We're walking backwards here. Verse 32. If I do accomplish this. See verse 32? That I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. If this gets accomplished... Oh, I'm coming to see you and it will be a spiritual retreat because I know who was in Rome and he named some of them and Romans chapter 16, he names off people like Aquila and Priscilla, whom he has spent many years doing ministry with. And he has never had to write to this church in Rome and tell them, you guys are wrong on your doctrine. He's never had to correct them about anything. He says, I love you guys and can't wait to be with you. So if I get this job done, I'm coming to you and I'm going to be thrilled to be with you. It will be a spiritual retreat. There are people in this church like Eponidas... He was my first convert in Corinth. That's what he says in Romans 16. I can't wait to come see you guys. So if it doesn't go well, verse 33, the, Lord, the, the God of peace be with you. But if it does go well, I'm coming to see you, and I'm going to come and we will be refreshed together. And oh, by the way, I'm not just coming to Rome. I'm headed to Spain, and you're going to go with me. Now, verse 30 and verse 31, this will give us some insight into what this trip to Jerusalem means to him and hear the words of verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren. I beg of you. I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. If you've ever prayed before in your life, church, pray like you've never prayed before. Because this detour is costly. It's expensive. Pray like you've never prayed, church. That's the words that he's using here. See him say him again in verse 30. I beseech you, I beg you, brothers, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. If you ever loved Jesus and you ever wanted Jesus' name to be made great, this is the moment to pray for that. And for the love of the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is in you and the Holy Spirit is stirring you up, oh, join me in prayer, as he says this, that you strive together. Strive. Work with me. Pray with me. I'm not asking you to just pray for me. I'm asking you to pray with me. Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. And he's going to tell them two things to pray for. He's not blind to this problem. And the first one, verse 31, that pray to God for me that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in, Jeru- in Judea. My life is on the line. I saw those thugs in Sincria Port. I keep hearing the testimony of people in Ephesus, in Tyre, in Agabus told me My life is on the line. Pray for me. Grab a hold of God in prayer for the sake of Christ and the love of the Holy Spirit. Pray that I can come and see you, but I've got to accomplish this. I've got to give them this love offering. And so pray. Pray for my life. And His words, Oh, I don't count my life as dear, He says "Elder places. So pray. And I would submit to you this morning that that is the lighter of the prayers because rarely does he ever ask for prayer for safety. You study the the prayers that Paul requests. He prays for the gospel to have free course. And rarely does he pray for his own safety. So his own safety is directly tied to his coming and seeing them. But there's a greater issue here, and it comes out in the second part of his prayer. This other one, I think, is the one that caused him to be the one that physically carries this love offering to Jerusalem. See it at the end of verse 31. That my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. Pray. Pray that they'll take this love offering. And I hope that that gives you pause. I've got to go 5,000 kilometers out of the way to personally be the one that puts this money in their hands. I've brought along with me Jason and Gaius and Aristarchus, and if these brothers don't take this love offering, that's going to be terribly offensive to those brothers from Macedonia. And that leads me to ask this question. Who doesn't take money? You would think... It's money, Take it. You know who doesn't take money? Someone who has been deeply offended. If you've been deeply offended by someone and they come to give you money, you keep your money. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Am I right? You meet little Papua New Guinea, You me sabe Lodisla. Oxen Bell cold, come. You may like in bell hot. Hold your bell cold money. I don't want it. Am I right? Paul's not bringing bell cold. Paul's not using the Macedonians for his own personal gain. Paul has gone and taught the Macedonians and Achaeans how to give from their deep poverty. And he is physically carrying this offering to those brothers in Jerusalem. But there's something on the line. I don't know if you remember this, but Paul has a lot of negative reactions or negative interactions with the brothers at Jerusalem. I'll remind you of a few of them. Do you remember back in Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells a story. He said, I was at Antioch and Peter was there. We're preaching the gospel and things are going really well. And then Peter was sitting there having dinner with some of those Gentile brothers. Do you remember that story? And into the room walked some of the brothers from Jerusalem, and he even names them. He says, some of the guys who came from James's group. James was the pastor in Jerusalem. And when those guys walked into the room, do you remember what Peter did? Pushed away from the table. I don't want to be seen eating with Gentiles. That's what Peter did. And Paul said, hey, hang on a second. And right there in front of everybody, put his finger in Peter's face and he said, Peter, don't you dare call something unclean if God's called him clean. You've done the wrong thing, Peter. You know who was in the room that day? James's friends. Guess who carried a message back to James and the brothers in Jerusalem? James's friends. And Paul hasn't had a chance to straighten that out yet. You might remember even the book of Galatians is written... About the very fact that some people, his words, some people have come from Jerusalem. They think themselves to be the pillars of the church and who they are. I don't give them space for one hour. That's the words of Paul. Very strong words. It was gospel related. It was important for him to take a stand. But there's negative interaction between Paul and the church at Jerusalem. And by the way, that had happened recently on his third missionary journey. That very thing had happened. He writes back to those Galatians and he says, you guys are fools. Don't add anything to the gospel. Without a doubt, words made it back to Jerusalem. And if nothing else, think back to 14 years previous. What was Paul's notoriety in Jerusalem? Oh he was Saul of Tarsus who in Acts chapter 7's words or Acts chapter 8's words he went house to house wreaking havoc on the church as he dragged out Christians persecuting them and putting them in prison and if ever there was one that would be an example it was Stephen The day they stoned Stephen is it any wonder that Paul says of all the sinners in the world I'm the chiefest The day they stoned Stephen, Paul was the one that led that. Paul's the one who stood there and held everybody's coats and said, Hey, guys, you're only hitting him in the legs. Head would do better. And they stoned Stephen. And in Acts chapter 8, the church was scattered. And in Acts chapter 8, the early verses, it says that those brethren that were there took Stephen's body and washed him and buried him. Broken. Oh, I can only imagine what that was like. So would you come back to the book of Acts with me? What if they don't accept the offering? They could have been deeply offended and Paul's request is please pray that they'll take this offering. Look at Acts chapter 21 again with me. I mentioned, by the way, in Acts chapter 21, the prophecy that came from Agabus. I didn't tell you whose house he was in. They were in Caesarea. Look at chapter 21 and verse number 8. They just came from Tyre. In verse 8, The next day we that were at Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. They came and stayed in Philip's house. And it's no mistake that the Bible would record Philip one of the seven. Perhaps you don't know what they mean when he says one of the seven. So I'll share with you who the seven were. Back in Acts chapter 6, there had been a problem in the church. The Grecian women weren't being taken care of. And so the church, the apostles said, We need some deacons to be called out. Here's what was written in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3 Wherefore they asked, Brethren, look you out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip and five other guys. The two guys at the top of the list, Stephen, whom Paul had killed, and Philip. And now, Acts chapter 21, Paul has come to the house of Philip. Twenty-four years have passed. I don't know if Paul has had any interaction with Philip in this meantime. It was in Acts chapter 9 that Philip left from Jerusalem and went to Caesarea. Scripture never says whether they interacted with each other again until this day. But you know what Philip did for Stephen? They served together as deacons in the church, they fed the Grecian widows. They took care of people in the church together. They loved the Lord together. They served the Lord together. And Paul killed him. And Philip washed his body. Crushed skull. Mangled arms. Mangled legs. Philip washed his body. You don't let go of that one very easy carried him and put him in the ground. And Paul says, I've got this love offering. It has nothing to do with Philip. It has everything to do with the poor believers in Jerusalem. And I have got to carry this offering personally. I've got to be the one that takes it there. Pray they'll take it. Don't let this thing be thrown away. And he carries it to Jerusalem. And his last step, last stop before he gets to Jerusalem is at Philip's house in Caesarea. And you want to see how things went? Look at Acts chapter 21 and verse 15. They tried. Agabus tried his best to warn Paul. Paul doesn't listen. Verse 21, chapter 21 and verse 15. And after those days we took up our carriages and went to Jerusalem. And there went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea. If they'd been turned away at Caesarea, no disciples are going with them. But instead, they leave from Caesarea to go to Jerusalem, and they're going with wagons. There's brothers and sisters who are together going to Jerusalem, and when they go, they're going with unity within the body, and they brought with them one, Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. They're going to go to Jerusalem and stay in Nason's house. He's an old disciple. You know what an old disciple has lived through? The stoning of Stephen. And now he's going to open his home and say, Paul, stay in my house. prayer is being answered you see this 5,000 kilometer detour out of the way I'm going to go somewhere so that I can go with the freeness of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus I've got to dispatch this there's a part of my life that needs to be taken care of for the sake of the unity among brethren, I'm going to go out of my way, lay my life on the line, and I'm going to go down there. Then they come into Jerusalem. Verse 17. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Praise God for unity among the brethren. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James. This is going to be another watershed moment for the church There was a watershed moment back in Acts 15 when Paul stood before James and he said, hey, listen, you don't circumcise Gentiles. It doesn't happen. They don't need to follow the law in order to be saved. And I'm sure that as James said, okay, with the right hand of fellowship, I'm sure that James is thinking in the back of his mind, I don't know what this guy is up to. And off Paul goes and brings an offering of Gentiles to the Lord. And he says before I can leave Jerusalem to Illyricum, before I can finish fully preaching the gospel on that side and go over to Rome and branch out to Spain, before I can go, most likely we'll never see these believers in Jerusalem, Antioch, or Macedonia, or any of them before I ever see them again. I'm going to head off to the other side. Before I can go and start that new ministry, I've got to come back to Jerusalem and take care of the problem at the starting place. The day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. God answered their prayer. Oh, God. Let them accept the ministry that I'm coming in to do. Why am I doing it? Because of the sake of the unity of brethren. This is oh so very important. Unity, friend, is vitally important. Paul put on hold a missions trip to a brand new place because there was not unity among the brethren. He went out of the way. You want to know what it cost him? The second prayer got answered. There was unity. The first prayer... Was answered in a way that, oh, the Holy Spirit had warned again and again and again, and in a way that he did not pray. By the time you come further in chapter 21, you can see down into verse number 28, 29, and 30, seven days after he visits with James, they, as brethren, go into the temple. And some of the men in the temple, those Jews, see him. And they've been watching him for the last seven days. And one of the things that they accused him of is they say, you brought a Gentile into the temple. He had not. They had seen him with Trophimus, one of those seven men. He'd seen, they had seen him with Trophimus in town. And they said, you brought Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple. Paul knew better. He'd never do that. They arrested him that day, tried their best that day to kill him. By the way, Paul ends up going to prison for years sits in prison at times waiting for government officials to just be bribed so that he could get out. And some of those kings along the way made statements like, we don't even know why we're holding him anymore. The Apostle Paul, it cost him deeply to take this detour. And you and I have no idea. The Scripture does not ever say whether he ever makes it out. One thing is known for sure. He makes it to Rome. And they take his head off. He will die in prison Can I say it this way? It's a very costly detour. It will cost him a lot. Why? Because of unity among the brethren. And I pray this morning as I have preached this sermon... I pray that the Holy Spirit of God has been doing His convicting work in your heart. You say, Pastor, you've just given us a historical lesson. No, I've been waiting and letting the Holy Spirit do His work in your heart this morning because the application is very clear. I think if God's been doing His work in your heart as you've listened to this sermon this morning, God has awakened in your heart the fact that you are not at unity with someone who's a brother or sister in Christ. And if Paul can go 5,000 kilometers out of the way, you can pick up a telephone. Or you can grab a little bag of kaikai and go across town and go and visit that friend. And if they don't receive it, it's not on you. But at least you've gone out of your way to make sure that you did your best. Paul says it's costly. Unity among the brethren is so important. These are Jewish brethren. There are Gentile brethren. Red and yellow and black and white and this political party and that one and highlands and coastal and loud boisterous leaders and calm level-headed ones. Lovers of the old paths and lovers of modern methods. And some eat meat and some eat herbs. Paul made a very clear statement in the last couple of weeks. Romans chapter 14 and verse 5. For meat, destroy not your brother for whom Christ died. For meat, destroy not the work of God. Romans 14, 20. Let every one of us please his neighbor for good to his edification. Romans 15, verse 2. Now let the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, Romans 15, verse 5. And then he finished that portion for today, Romans 15, 31. Pray that my service, which I have for, the Jerusa- for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints. So how serious is Paul about this? It was not an accident that they arrested him. How serious was it? You're there in Acts 21. I'll finish with this verse. Look at verse 13. Agabus just tied him up, tied himself up. He says, Paul, be careful. You own this belt. It's going to come to you. Acts 21, 13. Paul's answer. Then Paul answered, What mean you to weep and to break my heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, only but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. As important as the words that he said is equally important the words that he did not say. Because you and I are quick to repeat these words and add a few in. I'm ready to go and be bound, and I'm ready to die as long as I'm preaching the gospel That's not what he said. Did you see what he said? He didn't say, I'm going to preach the gospel. And that's not what he went to Jerusalem to do. He went to Jerusalem, Romans 15, verse 25, to minister to the saints. What's he say here in verse 13? I am ready to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Pray with me for the name of the Lord Jesus and the love of the Holy Spirit. For the name of the Lord Jesus. For meat, destroy not the body of Christ. Christ died to bring to Himself a unified group of people who normally would have been divided amongst themselves for the unity of the body. That's what the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem for. Church, unity is non-negotiable. I wonder what it might cost you this morning to reach out to someone to whom you might have been offended or perhaps you offended. Maybe it wasn't a sin issue. Maybe it's just you guys saw things differently. What have you done to make things right with your brother? Heavenly Father, I pray that as we have seen this very costly journey 5,000 kilometers out of the way to be arrested and never be able to fulfill what his dream was so costly. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a hard look at what it is that's holding us back from unity among brethren. For those that have no disunity, oh Lord, I rejoice with them. But Lord, for the rest of us, I pray we would be honest with ourselves this morning and say, before I can move on to something else, I need to take care of this in my past. Lord, thank you for your grace upon us. Thank you for sending Jesus to bridge the gap between us and you. Make us right with you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus going to the cross for our sins. Ask these things in your beautiful name.